You're listening to audio from Redeemer Church in Lubbock, Texas. Redeemer Church is a gospel-centered, missional family of disciples making disciples and churches planting churches. If you would like to get more information or donate to this ministry, please visit RedeemerLubbock.org. My name is Dusty. I'm one of the pastors here, and I'm really glad that you're here today. Um, It's my privilege to be able to um, work through the Book of Romans, really, for for this whole academic year. And uh, what I wanted to to do a little bit is even to give you a little bit of uh, some of the reason we go through books of the Bible and even a challenge as it relates to this sermon today. So um, one of the beautiful parts, like our bread and butter, we've been going for almost 15 years, has been to preach through books of the Bible and, you know, sometimes doing some little short series or, you know, standalone sermons. The last couple of years, we've got away from it while we were doing a Bible reading plan over the whole Bible, which was great in its own ways. But I love, one of the things I love about working through a book of the Bible, like we are uh, the book of Romans, is that the preacher doesn't get to decide what we talk about. You know, that um, I'm not going, you know what, this week we're going to talk about love, and next week we're going to talk about joy. The next week, what happens to animals when they die? Do they go to heaven? What, like, whatever. I could pick a, um, it'd be kind of an interesting sermon to hear. Um, like, what text would you use? Uh, so it'd be, you know, you just keep coming. Let's do love again on week four. And uh, But the thing is, is that, like, it's next text up, next passage, and that's what we got to talk about, and apparently that's what God wanted to communicate in the scripture, and let's just go ahead and handle that theme even like today. I I can't imagine which scenario I would pick like this whole section of scripture under any scenario. If I was just picking topics, this probably wouldn't be my passage and topic to, to pick. Um, so I think that's one of the beautiful things is God sets the agenda. Now here's a challenge of doing it the way we do it is that there's 16 chapters to the book of Romans and it was a letter written to like people, um, that were in, um, you know, ancient Rome and people that were exploring Christianity, people that were Christians and like writing about specific things. And the whole thing, uh, was, was like a whole, they would have read it like a letter. Like if you, if someone wrote you a letter or sent you an email, you wouldn't be like, Hey, let's just, let's just explore the first sentence this week. And then we'll come to see, you just read the whole thing. Right. And so that's a little bit of a, of a challenge from the way that I'm going to do this in that, um, it, it almost can get atomized in a way where you're looking at like, you know, breaking the atom up and let's look at this electron today. And next week we'll look at, you know, like this other little section. And it can be, that can be a challenge because what's happening to even move back to this passage today is the apostle Paul is really for the first two and a half chapters, all the way up to the middle of chapter three is going to be, he's really got one point. Think of him as a, like an attorney, um, in a courtroom that's trying to go for a conviction and he's got pacing back and forth and he's making his case and he's got, you know, exhibit A, B, C, D, you know, all these things and making a case why every human being needs Jesus. Like this week, he's going to be focused on those that uh, weren't really raised, like for a better term, like in church, like with a Judeo-Christian moral ethic and even an understanding of God. And he's really talking to them today. And then next week, he's going to talk to the religious Jew person that essentially was raised with the Bible and is going to be talking to issues specifically for them going, hey, yeah, just because your granddaddy was a pastor and um, you've been raised in Awana and Bible, you know, all-American Bible drill, that just because you possess the Bible doesn't make you immune either. You also need Jesus no matter what your religious background. And he kind of goes back and forth. And so it's a challenge because today it's talking to one group and you've got to look at it in relation to the whole that next week you ought to, you ought to come next week and hear uh, Paul make that case to the religious person. Uh, but then all of it can be kind of disconnected for, from like the good news of Jesus' death and resurrection. So that's a bit of a challenge I wanted to state up front on this passage um, that you, you need to look at it in relation to the whole. Um, 
now I also feel like I need to make one more public service announcement, and that's today. If this were the 90s um, and you're at Hastings buying a CD, uh, there would be a parental advisory sticker on this one. I, and that I'm going to do, I'm going to work the best I can. Like you heard the scripture read, I'm going to try to keep it as, you know, PG, PG-13 as I can, uh, but um, I'm going to uh, defer to parents in here. If you're like, yeah, I've got little ears and I'm, I'm just not sure this is really what we need to be doing, um, then I just wanted to give you a heads up on that. So let me tell you what, um, we're like a bit of an assertion here is that, that idolatry is going to be the theme today in a lot of ways. And what idolatry is, is whenever you, instead of acknowledging God as the, you know, the highest and greatest entity that exists and submitting to him, that we put something in his place. It can be a little, you know, tiki idol, you know, uh, but it can be other things that we put there, you know, sexual expression, comfort, control, career, money, relationships, how people view you and getting their approval and politics. I mean, truly anything, anything can go in that spot. And the assertion I'm going to make today is that um, the opposite of faith is not only like atheism. I mean, it could be. I mean, that's, that's one thing that would be opposite of faith. But I think you can make a case that the opposite of faith is really idolatry and putting something in God's place. No matter what box you would check on a religious survey of what religion you're in. And then I would make the case, actually, that um, objects of worship, which are what you think about, what you spend money on, what you love with the affections, what, like really what you really value is what worship is, is actually rarely settled on the playing field of religion. It's uh, what we love and what we do is really oftentimes what worship really is, if you really think about what that term means. So, um, so we're, we're just going to start working through this. We're going to start in verses 18. We're going to go 18 through 20, and then we're going to stop and then come back to the passage that Johanna read a moment ago. All right, so verse 18, it says, uh, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. So first of all, I want to introduce a theme of the wrath of God and not a popular topic, but it's real. And, and I would make the case of this, that if you want to recoil and say, look, I don't want to talk about judgment and wrath. I don't want to talk about hell. I don't want to talk about any of that. That if that's where we go, then when we get to chapter three and we see that the cross was God's solution, where God puts forward Jesus Christ, the son, is a solution both to wrath as well as a way to get grace. That if we, if we go ahead and mute that wrath part right now, um, the, uh, the gospel of Jesus's grace is not going to pop to you at all. Like it's against that backdrop of all of us deserving wrath. Again, today, it's going to be more of like the, for lack of a better term, like a, a pagan Gentile, which is a Greek, non like a non-Jewish person, that um, that person that probably felt like, hey, I, you can have all your religious viewpoints you've got, but I don't think that way. I wasn't raised that way, so I'm immune from it. That, uh, that, that he's making the case of, look, the wrath of God is, is actually revealed no matter what your religious background is. Like God's wrath is a real thing. And then it also pulls up another idea that I think is really confrontive and helpful when it says that, look, you, uh, we tend to suppress the truth is how verse 18 ends, is that I, th- I think how most of us like to think is you're like, man, I know that in the world, people tend to be formed by their culture and formed by maybe their religion, formed by their family of origin, formed by lots of things. But me, I'm objective, you know, like I, I'm just taking in the data and I'm making a rational measured, careful choice on what I think is true about God, what I think is good about morals and all those kind of things. And, and I'm just objective. But what this says is that, look, and you'll see this is a theme in these few verses here, 
is the problem is rarely with the evidence. The problem is internally, that the, the truth is there, no matter what that level of truth that we know, but the problem isn't with the truth. The problem is that we tend to suppress it. Like, we don't want to see how most of us, and you can see this in a million ways in our society right now, is what we tend to do is we tend to start with the thing that we think should be okay, and I think this and this and this and this should be okay. And then I'm going to work backwards to find a belief system that will be congruent with what I've already, what I've already determined it should be okay and that I should be allowed to do or people should be allowed to do. And so uh, in a lot of different ways, we tend to suppress the truth. You'll see it more here. Verse 19, uh, for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. So again, this is God not talking to the Bible drill church kid, um, but rather to someone that hasn't been raised in church that's saying, I can't be accountable because I don't know all this stuff. I wasn't raised in church. He's like, well, actually, but God has made himself plain to you. He's shown himself to you. And you may be like, how? Like, how could he have made himself clear if I haven't been in church my whole life? And verse 20 is the answer. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So through creation, and then listen to this last sentence, so they are without excuse. So here's what Paul's saying, is that um, every human being, um, through observation, should be able to see that God exists. And it could be in a lot of different ways. It could be through something like physics, where you look and you look at the universe, and you're like, man, if the universe wasn't fine-tuned exactly like this, this, this specific um, number of gravity, and there's like there's four or five numbers like that, that it would be impossible for the universe to permit life, let alone it be created. Like it, it just wouldn't work if all these numbers weren't exactly where they needed to be. It could be that. That could be the kind of observation that would lead you to say, okay, well, there had to have been design uh, by an intelligent designer. Or it could be, you know, looking at that brand new telescope that we just got, you know, collectively as the world, and looking, oh, wow, no human eye has ever seen that galaxy before. That's kind of neat. And looking at that galaxy and that God made that, even though we just are now seeing it, that it's just whispering to you of creation and design. Or it could be a microscope where you look at cells and you, or you perhaps explore the human central nervous system or something like that that's very complicated. And, um, and you're like, man, this is incredible. Look at the design. Or, or it may be something less like scientific. It could be, look at that sunset, look at the mountain, look at the stream, look at the beach, um, look, look at this West Texas evening. And, and it could be, think, or look at beauty and look at music and our emotional life and all these different things that there's a lot of evidence for us to say it's more likely for us to believe that there's a God exists. And if you, if you take that, then the next step would be, well, okay, if there's a God that exists, uh, w- would it be true then that I would need to reorient my life around this being? And if this being has communicated in any way, what this being would say would go, and I would need to defer to this being. But again, the problem is that we, we suppress the truth. We don't want to know. And uh, so even things that are there, we're like, well, I mean, it could also be these other things and, and whatever. And, and it says, so we're without excuse. In other words, even if you weren't raised with Bible drill, going to youth group every Wednesday night, that even the revelation you have received, you haven't wanted any part of, and you've wanted to do your own thing, and you've started with what you've wanted to do, and you've worked backwards to what must be true about God. Okay, now what we're going to do is we're going to pick up from this. This, this um, Paul just making another kind of argument to the, uh, the person that has not been in church effectively, and uh, verses 21 through 28, which is what Johanna read. Now, here's something that was, uh, there's a pastor um, and writer that alerted me to a few things in this passage that I had 
not seen before. A guy named John Piper, and here's the case he made. There's these three things that are in this passage that I think are really interesting. And check this out. And they get repeated. Listen to this. These three points in these, in these verses, 21 through 28, get repeated three times in this order. Three times. For this is a, in ancient literature, this is you know, a, a technique of writing where repetition was a way of enforcing or reinforcing truth and saying, no, this is really important. So here's the three-step cycle in Romans 1. Step one is God's glory is exchanged in some way or another for something lesser or where he's refused to be acknowledged. In some way, instead of acknowledging him as creator and that, look, you get to call the shots and you are this great being, that, um, that there's something exchanged. Like we just saying Jesus is better. That, um, that there's an inversion of that, that some other object is better. That's what idolatry is. Step two, God gives us over to these desires um, that I think a lot of us can mistake the fact that we haven't been struck dead by lightning as a kind of acceptance of our choices. And that's actually not how normatively what God does. He's like, okay, that's what you want. Have all you want. You know, you want that? Then go to the all-you-can-eat buffet of that thing. You can have all you want and then kind of see where it takes you. Step three is kind of the end conclusion of that, and that's that this brokenness, not all the time, but it's often acted out sexually, all right? Now, we're going to see that it's not exclusively sexual because um, at the very end of this passage, at the end of this, in verses 29 through 32, you're going to see a laundry list of all sorts of other things that could be in that place, but oftentimes there's a sexual expression of this inward broken reality. All right, so let's go ahead and run through it. Um, These three, um, you'll see these three steps repeated three times in Romans 1. So let's look at the first, the first um, cycle of this. So uh, the first point of God's glory is exchanged for something lesser is in verse 23. It says, exchange the glory of the immortal God for images. Step two, about God handing them over, giving them over, you see in verse 24, which is, therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their heart to impurity. Uh, step three is the end of verse 24, uh, which is a, a sexual expression of this internal idolatry and replacement of God with something else to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. Okay, so, um, so you see the, the three steps of this is they don't want God, so he hands them over, and then there's a sexual expression oftentimes of this rebellion and exchange uh, of God's glory for something else. So here's going to be, um, I just need to clarify a few things before we move on. I think, first of all, this is very broad right here. Like, this isn't spelling out, like, what kind of, of like, sexual sin and dishonoring of bodies that there are. It isn't spelling that out. This is very broad. I think intentionally. It would include heterosexual, homosexual sex, everything like that. Um, and I think sometimes you can start working in the negative. And I think there's actually you know, a lot of people out there that think that, um, that the Bible's teaching on sex is really repressive and restrictive. Um, the reality is, is the Bible has a real positive take on sex. Um, and it's just within boundaries. It's like everything else. These things are good, but they're within boundaries. So the Bible's take on human sexuality is it's good within the setting. And this setting is between a man and a woman in the covenant of marriage for life. Like inside of this, it's not icky. It's not dirty. It's not shameful. It's not gross. It's not bad. It's not, it's not any of that. It's uh, no shame and this expression of love that's pleasurable physically, but actually binds a man and a woman together um, that are in it for the long haul, um, committed to each other like that. So um, that's the design. Uh, but what this is saying here is that, look, but this gets broken. And instead of that design being expressed in a safe relationship, there are these other, anything outside of that safe relationship there, it gets expressed in these broken ways. Now, here's a case I'm going to make just really quick. Is that I think I can make a case that all of us 
First of all, we're broken, which is Paul's whole point in Romans 1 through 3. Every one of us are human people uh, that are broken and have different things that are not all together. Can we agree on that? And then I think if that's true, I think we can also say, even as sexual beings, that all of us carry some kind of brokenness with us, all of us. And some of us in real obvious ways where there was like some, some kind of tragic thing in your past, like maybe some kind of abuse or even a rape, um, something that, that um, like your relationship with sexuality had like some like really sad, um, hurtful, painful part. Um, or it just could be like a lot of promiscuity in your past that while you're trying to find meaning in all that, like there's a lot of shame and regret or maybe even your relationship with your own body and how you view things. It could be those kind of, of, of um, topics, things, emotions, or maybe on the other side of the, of the, uh, of the spectrum, maybe you you were that youth group kid, and um, you know it's like sex is bad, sex is bad, sex is bad. You better wait, and you get to marriage, and it's like it's really hard to flip that switch. That all of a sudden, sex is not supposed to be icky and bad and awful, um, and like you kind of hate it, and you don't know why it exists, and um, you you don't know why God designed it. And so, like there, there's a, a real a broad spectrum of like broken and sad relationships with human sexuality that are in this room. Just on a personal note. Um, like I, I, I've got to be able to share these things like appropriately in this room. I mean, I can't just sit on the couch here and you all be my therapist and say, let me tell you about what this is for me. Um, that wouldn't be even appropriate. But I'll say this one, um, that um, I'm also a human being that's broken, including in the world of sexuality. Like when I was a college student and even a little bit younger than that, when I was really getting exposed to the Christian like teaching on sexuality, which is, you know, here it is, in man and woman in marriage, and I believe that, and I think that was the right teaching. But here's what I thought, is I thought someday when I got into marriage and I was able to enjoy a sexual relationship with my wife, that all of my insecurity and loneliness and uh, like everything, like all um, every, every sad even struggles with lust and even the things that make, you know, make it easy for you to struggle with lust, that those were just going away. And I was going to be whole in every sense. And, um, and what ends up happening is you get married and you realize, oh man, like it didn't, like uh, sexual expression, even in the right context, didn't like fix my insecurities and loneliness. Like none of that. Like it didn't, it didn't fix any of those things. I mean, it's a beautiful expression of love. Yes. And loving one another, uh, an incredible bond and connection with your spouse. Yes to that. But it didn't like fix me, you know? And so like all of us come in with these things and, and whatever sexuality in our culture is like hyper sexualized, although oddly having less sex than any time in recorded American history, just throwing that out there. And so like hypersexualized of like no boundaries, it's all good, everything's good. And yet empty, lonely, and looking for it to deliver almost as a savior. And that's what idolatry is, is looking for sex or anything else to be a savior. And it can never be that. And can you imagine the kind of expectations, even in marriage, you put on spouse and um, expecting things to be fixed. And it's just not ever designed to be that way. All right, let's quickly look through second step step through this passage. This one we'll pick up in verse 25. So step one, the exchange is they exchange the truth about God for a lie. And boy, that, that's been done for a long time, going back to Genesis 3, and worship the ser- and serve the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. And so that's what idolatry is, is putting creature above creator. It's not even necessarily a denial of, of creator, but it's like, oh, he's there. But the main thing are the created things, the sex and the comfort and the career and the money and the relationships, on and on, anything, really. Um, step two, 
Um, God gave them over, verse 26, to dishonorable passions. That parallels verse 24. If step one paralleled verse 23, this parallels verse 24. Step three, second half of verse 26, which is the, the sexual expression, for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature, and the men likewise gave up natural relations. Again, that would be that relationship between man and woman in marriage with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. That corresponds with, with also verse 24, the second half of it. Um, so we're going to talk um, a little bit more about homosexuality in just a second, but I want to go through the third, uh, the third time through the threefold sequence here, starting in verse 28. One last time through the passage, again, for emphasis, um, I think this is why Paul's doing it, making his case, why every human being is accountable, uh, says uh, for the exchange, it's they, since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, that's a different way of saying they exchanged God's glory uh, for something lesser. Um, just that song we just sang, um, Jesus is better, they, they, something else was better. Uh, corresponds with verses 23 and 25. Step two, God gave them up to a debased mind. So it's like, okay, that's what you want. Then, you know, you have a different way of thinking that he gave them up. Corresponds with verses 24 and 26. And then step three, uh, to do what ought not to be done, um, would be the last part of verse 28. Uh, that corresponds with verse 24, also verses 26 and 27. And probably, again, broader than just homosexual um, sexual relationship, but uh, just in general with sexuality. And so um, here's the thing. So I just want to, first of all, see the big picture of this. The case that Paul's making is someone that's saying, I don't have the Bible, so how can I be accountable? Um, he's saying, well, look, first of all, let's look at creation. Second of all, uh, second of all, even look at um, even the things you should have seen about God uh, from creation and other things. You haven't, you haven't wanted to acknowledge him. You've exchanged him with other things. God's response to that is let you have all of it you want. And then um, not all the time, but a lot of times there's a sexual expression of that idolatry. Even sex itself can become the idol and it's a dead end. So that, that's what verses 21 and 20 through 28 they're trying to prove to someone that even your sexual past, your relationship with sex, is like whispering to you that you need the grace of Jesus. Like that's, that's the argument that he's making here. Now, um, I feel like we've got to talk a little bit about homosexuality, is that, that especially right now in our cultural moment, that these are huge topics. So here's, again, what I want to like reiterate. Uh, first of all, this sermon is not a sermon on homosexuality. This is a supporting argument of a much larger argument that Paul is saying every person, straight or gay, or anything else needs Jesus. So so understand that point um, from, from the jump. Uh, but the other thing that he's making a case for here is, look, there's this sexual expression of our brokenness. And we've already established that the positive way the Bible talks about sex is in this context, right? Man and woman in marriage for life. That, that's the setting. And that would include um, all other forms of heterosexual sexual expression, but also homosexual sexual relationships. And so I want to point this out, too, because this is where you can really misunderstand me and I think the Bible is there going to be people all over this room that on a spectrum here have a, a varied levels of attraction to people of their same sex, all right? Like there are going to be people in here that have that. Have that. And I just want you to know that, that that's, that's not what this passage is saying directly. Uh, like if you've got a, a struggle there and you're trying to honor Jesus with it and, and yet there's a level of attraction, you're combating it, you're confronting it with truth, you're try, that, that that's not what this is saying. I also want to say to someone that's like, hey, I ain't even battling it, like I'm gay or I'm lesbian or whatever. Um, like I just want you to know that first of all, like I, I most certainly don't hate you. I'm not mad at you. 
Um, and uh, furthermore, I also don't think this passage is singling you out that uh, where it is that you've went in your sexual life is worse than someone else um, with the way that where they've went, even including it with heterosexual sexual broken behavior. And really what this, this passage is getting at is that there's something about who it is that we are that often uh, finds sexual expression. Um, well, let me just say it real practically. Um, I've walked through lots of couples with extramarital affairs over the years, lots of them. And I'm still waiting on my first one that was about the sex. I mean, I'm not saying that sex wasn't like the culmination of it, but I'm still waiting on my first one that was really about the sex. It was about a need for belonging and connection and intimacy and someone that thought you were interesting and funny and beautiful and you felt alive again, you felt young again. And like that, that's what, that's what actually drew you in. And the sexual expression was like the last step of that. But it were these other things other things that took God's place, even good desires, but became ultimate and first, and that's where things went. Um, so look, all of us, and, and I would say the same thing even about being um, you know, on an app where it's like serial hookups, one after another. It's like we're looking for even temporary connection and intimacy, even if it's for a night, even if it's for, if it's for a moment. Like our souls are wanting something else. We're longing for connection, and we know deep down that, that our, the way our society is putting it right now is leaving us hollow and empty. And so, look, and I think all of us are included in one way or another. Um, I'm going to read the last few verses just so you don't think it's just only about sex. There are a lot of different ways we can be broken, um, and this is him making his case. He says, they were filled, verse 29, with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness, gossips, slanders, haters of God, insolent, haughty, but not like that, boastful, inventors of evil, uh, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but get approval of those who practice them. So here he's saying, hey, an idolatry isn't limited to, to sexual expression. God can also hand you over to a great number of things. Oh, you think money is going to make you whole and give you comfort and approval and a sense of importance and power? Um, then have all you want of that and, and see where that takes you. There, there's a lot of expressions of idolatry. That's not why it's, it's not only sexual for sure. And you see 29 through 32, these saying, hey, look, let me just throw this out there. It's just a broader indictment that all of us, um, Calvin made this case 500 years ago that our hearts are idol factories, that we're just constantly cranking out new ones that we'll put in God's place, even good things. So let me personalize this, if you're trying to make sense of this. So I've already shared, um, you know, even about like my, my sexual past on what I thought sex might do for me as a married man. Now let me get outside of the sexual arena and talk about um, just things that are there for me. And you probably are going to think these things are stupid, but I'm sharing my life and you've got your things, right? So for me, I mean, I've got a lot of things that I can t- tend to put in God's place. But, um, you know, one of the hardest ones that's a good thing for me to keep in its right orbit, like God's at the center, and this thing needs to be orbiting around God, is like my relationship with my children. Like, it's so hard. Um, I've got a friend who's a pastor that our kids, oldest kids are about the same age. And I remember when his daughter was born, like he was holding her in the, um, in the, deli- you know, the delivery room. And he was like, oh, this is going to be a problem. <laughs> That's what he said. This is going to be a problem. And uh, like th- those of you, like you college and you know, high school students that are in here, like you don't get it right now. You're like, mom, please, you know. And, but you don't understand that like that's still what you are. And I had a friend that went to the LCU orientation and they brought up, they had the parent and kid orientation. And he told me that they brought up like five-year-olds up there. And we're like, hey, kids, just know that this is how your parents still see you right here. And all the parents are 
And I'm sure the kids were, this is so dumb. Anyway, so, um, but the reality is, is that I've, I've struggled with it the whole time. And even specifically, like with sports, which are a big part of our life um, as a family. And what's interesting is, is I know all the right answers, that Jesus is the best and he's the most important. Even though this passage is really trying to convince someone who's not a Christian on, look, you're accountable and you need Jesus's grace. Like I actually have experienced the same process as a Christian where I'll think, man, this is incredible. And you start thinking, man, he's pretty good too, you know, and it feels good. And you're winning tournaments and maybe your kid's playing well. And, and if this isn't your deal, it won't be hard for you to think about what is your deal. And um, what's interesting is I don't know that I've put it in God's place until it starts to disappoint me, um, until um, you have a terrible tournament, um, until um, they play poorly, until for example, they tear their knee on homecoming ACL on their senior year in high school, uh, or whatever the case may be. And then all of a sudden you're like, oh wait. And, and so over the years between my wife, Amy, and a good friend of mine, Jason, I can't tell you how many times over coffee um, we've had to like say, man, I, I've done it again. Like I, it, sports let me down so much this week, or it could even be as a fan, you know, it could be a lot of things, right? And, and that let me down and, um, and where um, we're over and over again, I've come to this realization. Sports are really neat. They're really fun, an incredible way for a dad to connect with their kid, an incredible thing to experience together, lots of fun, terrible savior. Terrible savior, lots of fun. And can't we say that about sports? Uh, can't we say that about sex? Can't we say that about money? And God's, the way he's handled me is, okay, you want to kind of live through your kids? You're like, do you really? I, I guess. I guess that's what that is. Do you really want to go make money everything to you? Do you really want to make a pursuit of comfort everything? Then have all you want. And where I end up landing with that, gratefully, as a Christian, is because I know what's true, even if I forget it, that um, I come back to this place because I remember God's promises. And I remember the Holy Spirit saying, look, Jesus is better. Um, he, he's who we trust. Um, sports is beautiful. Sex is beautiful. Um, grateful to have money and pay bills. But they all orbit around God. And we submit to God. What we think is ultimate is not ultimate, but rather what he says is ultimate. And we trust him and we submit to him. And, and that's even a call. If you're a Christian and you can identify with me and you struggle replacing him and exchanging him and you struggle with putting idols, things in God's place and you do that, then even today might be a call home to you, um, whether it's in a sexual thing or not. Maybe it's in the area of your thought life and porn or, or your relationship. It could be anything that you, maybe, I mean, there's a response here. But I also want to appeal to those of you who very much were the target of this passage today. Again, the religious person will be the target next week who um, you've been like, man, I don't know any of this and it ain't my thing and I'm fine. My hope is, is that you've maybe even seen this cycle play out in your own life as you've exchanged God's glory for something else and you've pursued um, sexuality on your own terms. You've pursued your kids and sports on their own terms and you've even experienced the, um, the terrible consequences of it. Like you may have seen videos of kids screaming or getting screamed at by their parents on the drive home. Studies have even shown from college athletes their least favorite thing uh, about their youth sports um, experience was the drive home, where, you know, mom, um, hey man, you, what, runners in second and third, what are we thinking? You know, that kind of thing. And um, it's like the pressure we put, and it's like you end up crushing the thing that you're allegedly like loving. And, that, and that's how it always goes, is my hope is for the first time for you today, there would be an acknowledgement of God and even a sense of submission and worship and belief in him. And the way that happens is through Jesus's death and resurrection. We will get there in Romans 3, I promise. The rest of Romans will be highlighting it, but that's the way out. If you're like, what's the good news to this? 
Um, we're gonna get there. That's the way out here where God is rightly put in his place, where God's mercy is extended to us. And my prayer is that every one of us today would experience it. And I'm gonna pray that right now. Lord, uh, let that be true, that we would experience you and your grace and that every one of us, whether it's for the first time and turning to you or a, a Christian that, um, that knows what this is like, even to experience some of these things, that there would be a return right now. And I pray this in Christ's name, amen.